welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'd like to thank the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work for being one of the sponsors of this episode. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism in all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Laura Abrams and Nicole Vasquez about critical race theory in social work. Shout out to my former student Gabby for suggesting I do a podcast episode explicitly about CRT in response to the anti-CRT executive order. Laura is the chair and professor of social welfare at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Nicole is a critical race scholar, the former field director and chair designee in Cal State Dominguez Hills MSW program, and currently runs Vasquez Consulting. They discuss the history of CRT, honoring the scholars of legal studies who develop CRT, with the analysis that the law is not neutral, and has been used to oppress people of color and others from marginalized groups. Laura and Nicole provide an overview of some of the core tenets of CRT, using specific examples that connect to social work and ways to implement them in practice. Some of the core tenets covered are race is a social construct, racism is an ordinary everyday experience, myth of colorblindness, critique of liberalism and the myth of meritocracy, differential racialization, interest convergence, and counter-narratives. They talk about white supremacist culture and its impact on all of us, particularly how it works to strip communities of color from their collective and community-based cultures. We discuss CRT's fit with social work's social justice focus and how social work educators, students, and practitioners can implement CRT in their work and programs. We also talk about barriers to change and how to address them. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. So before we get into the episode, I'm so excited to tell you all about this episode's sponsor, Designs by T. T is a Brooklyn-based social worker who's created a line of t-shirts and accessories to disrupt places and spaces and the fashion industry. This t-shirt line is doing what no other social worker has done before, fusing creativity with art, and she's managed to create a local buzz. She gives 10% of all sales towards purchasing essentials for children and families in a local shelter. She's got a social work collection, a socially conscious collection, a royalty collection, a kids collection. You've got to check her out at Designs by T, that's T-E-E, designsbyt3.com. Check out the link in the show notes and take $5 off your next t-shirt order with the code T pod five. That's T E E P O D and the number five. T pod five. And now here's the interview. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Laura. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited for this episode to kick off 
2021. We know, we all know how horrible of a year 2020 was. <laughs> yeah. Hoping, yeah. Hoping 2021, um, you know, really wanted to start this year with doing the work by really bringing it. And I just can't think of a better way to do that than to have both of you on here, two people I just respect so much and I've learned so much from already to talk about critical race theory and then also critical race theory and social work. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. So let's get right into it because this could be like a whole podcast, you know, in and of itself, not just one episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? And, you know, we're really hoping that this is something that people listening can learn about. It could be an entry point, and it's also something they can take away, you know, practical speaking and begin to implement it, whether they're an educator, whether they're a student, whether they're a social work practitioner, you know, doing work in the community. All, all those ways, there's a place for, for all of those areas to apply CRT. Definitely. Yeah. So let's, let's start with, you know, some history. For sure, yeah. So um, critical race theory kind of sprang up in the late 70s, and it originated in legal studies. So um, like one of the main kind of aspects of CRT is, you know, to look at our history, and in that, um, taking it further to honor our past. So I'm going to name drop some CRT OGs like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Mari Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, and Angela Harris, Kimberly Crenshaw, Cheryl Harris, and Jerry Kong. So Folks like Derek Bell, you know, back in the 70s, um, legal scholars started to, you know, look at legal studies and look at the absence of any discussion around race or racism in in legal studies. And if you think about potentially like what uh, law students are taught, you know, or in society, we're taught that um, justice is blind you know, ostensibly justice is blind, but we know that in, in our history in the United States, like there have been laws that have been created to explicitly um, further marginalize and oppress people of color and people from marginalized groups. So um, the critical, what eventually became critical race theorists started to kind of question that and moved to integrate discussion around race and racism into legal studies. So since then it's, um, branched off and been included, I would say, um, pretty, pretty deeply in fields like education and public health and social work. Um, the first article was written in 2002 by two Canadian scholars. Um, and in the U S you know, I'll defer to, uh, Laura for, you know, um, Abrams and Moyo came out in 2009, I believe. Um, so, that's how long kind of it's been put out there in terms of social work in, in the United States. And um, I think it's slowly gained traction uh, since then. And so um, critical race theorists came up with a set of tenets. And so there aren't a standardized set of tenets of critical race theory um, because it has been applied in different disciplines. Um, so therefore, for like for social work, there isn't a standardized set of tenets, but there um, there are some kind of very fundamental ones that that we use when we apply it to social work practice. So thanks, Nicole, for that awesome introduction. Um, and one of the things that I think is important to add around critical race theory and the law, which really relates to social work, 
is the time period of the 70s when people were believing that the post-civil rights era, um, that it was important to be colorblind, so to speak. And it, in that colorblindness meant that to have a race consciousness um, itself or to notice race was racist. And, and you hear this now, if you if you're if you're watching any of the backlash against critical race training, um, or the news speaking out against telling teachers that they need to confront their white privilege, what what people who teach and study and train people on critical race theory right now are being accused of is is being racist, actually. <laughs> But we can get back to that later. So, um, and the reason, and and this is because these really important legal scholars and activists and scholars of color were saying to us, we cannot assume colorblindness in the law or in the practice of the liberal welfare state, so to speak, because we know that our society is racist. Right. And so even the law cannot be neutral. You know, social welfare can't necessarily be neutral. Education isn't going to be neutral because these are all arms of the state. Um, and so colorblindness itself is a contradiction um, because in order to address racism, we ha- first have to acknowledge it. So one. Uh, so a couple of tenants around race and critical race theory that are intertwined are one, that race is itself a social construction, that it's not biologically rooted, it's not genetically rooted, but that racism exists. So acknowledging race as a social construction does not disavow the presence of racism. And in fact, critical race theory asserts that Racism is an ordinary, everyday occurrence for people of color in the United States, um, and that it's and other parts of the world, um, and that racism is it's as it's ordinary um, is deeply embedded in institutions and people's experiences in the day to day world. Um, as color blindness tries to erase noticing racism, it had the unintended effect of allowing covert and overt forms of racism to exist without people being able to pinpoint who the actors are or who the racists are, so to speak, in a, in a, in a world where civil rights was supposed to eradicate overt racism. Um, so these are, there's a lot of nuances there. But I, I have to say, I think one of the biggest waking up points for me as a white woman and academic who grew up childhood in the 70s was understanding that everything I was taught about how important it was not to notice race or to point out anything about race because of colorblindness actually was perpetuating racism. I think it's such an important point in that you gave that personal aspect of it at the end is important because something that I was thinking about 
as you were talking about color blindness in in that kind of the framing of even trying to talk about race and racism, right? Is who who was talking about color blindness? Like, you know, because it was most likely white people framing it that way. And because for people of color, right? People of color know that racism exists. People of color know that race exists. So it's like, who gets to set even the discussion? And I think that's where like CRT already from that beginning saying like racism is baked into the fabric of this, of the United States, right? Like that acknowledges that right there too. Like we can't even have these conversations without acknowledging that. And I I will admit, you know, growing up in a white liberal Jewish family in the 70s, talking about somebody's race was a no-no. It was a, mm-mm, you can't do that, you know. Um, and that was something I unlearned in college um, when I took, you know, um, kind of critical classes, sociology, women's studies, uh, African-American studies. But I would say that there's been a, a few generations of people, I guess my especially my generation, Gen X, um, that we all grew up with that edict that racism, when you talk about race, it's racism. Yeah. I think that idea of colorblindness is so key and important. Um, so thank you, Laura, for bringing that up. And then, you know, like Shimon, you were saying that it's um, kind of just baked into kind of like the fabric of the United States just goes along. It follows into the next tenet that, that I wanted to talk about, which is the critique of liberalism. And I think, you know, when folks see that in written form, you know, when you see the, the term liberalism, we think about it in like on like a political spectrum of like conservatives and liberals. But the idea of liberalism really grew out of um, the time of kings and queens. So, you know, kings and queens, you know, if you think about the divine right of kings, the kings and queens of the time, monarchs believed that they, um, they were ordained by God to be in the positions that they were and the people that served them, like their um, peasants and servants um, were ordained by God for their positions and um, thus grew revolution. Right. And um, people revolted against that idea and pushed back against that idea. And then came forth with this idea that all, you know, quote unquote, men are created equal. Right. So on, um, the surface, that's, that's great because, you know, we all should have this, there's this equal playing field and we all have, um, you know, an equal shot at opportunity in, in life. But, um, in the United States, um, so that idea of liberalism then came over with, you know, the settler colonial colonials that, that came, um, to, you know, what eventually became the United States. And that idea of, you know, if you all quote unquote men are created equal translates to this idea of rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you just work hard enough, you will succeed in life. Um, and, and on the surface, that all seems, you know, all good and well, but kind of underlying that is this focus on the individual. And if someone kind of like falls on hard times, is poor, for example, or um, commits a crime or starts to use substances, then that focuses on the individual and it's their fault and it's due to their own personal moral failings. 
And so that's where the critique of liberalism comes in, in critical race theory. It's this like myth of meritocracy that we all have this like equal opportunity in life. Right. And um, what liberalism then is in the United States is kind of sets the standard and, and this norm for what is um, normal or acceptable behavior here in the U.S. And if anyone kind of falls away from that, then the focus is on them and not on not on the systems that potentially created the situation that, you know, people end up finding themselves in. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about that, I think of quotes that um, get said sometimes in like education or in social work. So I'm just going to say one that Mm -hmm. I've actually heard like in one of my classrooms, like a student um, said, which led into an interesting conversation because I was like, hey, we need to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So where there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that goes straight to that idea of like this meritocracy, right? That like, as long as someone's got a will or the one in education you hear a lot about is grit, right? Like if you just work hard enough and, and that conversation, like, so what, you know, what does that mean when you're working with people as a social worker, if you think that way and, you know, how are you going to like potentially do harm by putting that belief system onto that client? Right. Well, the interesting, let me, if I, if I can, I think one of the interesting parts of that conversation is also within communities of poverty and vulnerability, there are many messages that you hear, um, like in faith-based services, for example, in 12-step programs that resemble the, um, you know, the individual aspiration model, I I would call it, Mm -hmm. Um, along with community uplift. But there's very much a focus on personal responsibility. And it's an ethos that's permeated not just white culture, but I would say also institutions that operate in, in many communities in the United States. Now, where that is that unique to the United States I'm not certain, but I think it does have a particular relationship to the history that Nicole was speaking about earlier. Definitely. And that it becomes embedded in, for example, uh, model minority myths um, and ways that we, we tend to say, and this is part of critical race theory as well, okay, well, this group's doing well. You know, uh, Chinese Americans are doing well. So they're, they must be doing something right, you know? And so that's a principle called differential racialization in, in critical race theory. Another area where my work has been in the criminal justice system, and that is an area where I see a lot of the personal ethos, personal responsibility, self-reliance discourse really taking a toll on people um, because... In, in all the folks I talk to who've been incarcerated or who are struggling post-incarceration, they have be, they have really come to internalize the belief that is solely on them if they're going to succeed or fail. Hmm. You know, they, they don't want to rely on others. Um, the, the ethos of personal responsibility runs very deep. And in my research, what I found is that that 
cuts across racial lines too. And also that it's particularly acute among men, you know, who um, obviously also the majority of people imprisoned are male. Um, but the sense of um, masculinity and, and needing to provide um, in addition to being basically indoctrinated in prison that it's your fault that you're here and it's you only you who can who can help yourself when you get out mm-hmm. and that can be a huge trap for people when they find themselves in conditions that where they aren't doing well that they just really blame themselves you know and not necessarily that they were sent out of jail with a fifty dollars in their pocket and no place to live right yeah so um that that's come up a lot in the in my research and in the work that I've done, both in youth prisons and and adult. Yeah, I think that um, that to me is like, like, I will fully say that I've 100% drunk the Kool-Aid of, of critical race theory and it courses through my veins. <laughs> I can, because like, Laura, when you're talking about what you just said, to me goes back to the critique of liberalism in that this idea of liberalism upholds like white supremacist culture. So that's why we use the term white supremacy that people, you know, react against, right? Because I think, I mean, and that's changed, that's shifted very quickly, I think, in the last year or two. But um, people still react to that, to that term, but it's important to talk about it, because it is white supremacist culture that has created this standard and this norm, such that we've all bought into it even people of color, even people from other marginalized groups, right, have bought into it. So when you talk about these um, men that are in prison that have bought into that they blame themselves for the conditions that they're in, and they feel that they're the only ones that can get them out of these conditions that they're in, right, it's, we've bought into that idea, that, you know, that personal responsibility that it's on me, um, and, and, and again, like why I say white supremacist culture is that because it really, particularly for, for people of color, that takes away our, um, identity and our historical generational, like lineage that, that we come from where we are very, you know, communal, community based cultures, right? We intergenerationally rely on each other and, and that has been taken away from us. And particularly for Black folks here in the U.S. that have a history in slavery, that's been taken away from them for centuries, and it's been reinforced for that long too. Then it hopefully it's easier for us to understand like why we buy into it, why everybody buys into it, um, and that's why it's important I think to talk about white supremacist culture because it is so ingrained and so embedded that we have to kind of get in there and look at it to start to be able to tear it apart and really get back to our roots. You know, that brings up another really something I think about a lot about rehabilitation narratives. So when you think about what most of our, the central premises of, of even social work is, in it, not just, you know, liaisoning and getting people their needs and services, which is a big part of social work. But another big part of social work is getting people to, quote unquote, help themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the narratives of rehabilitation in prison and in substance abuse programs and in employment programs and in even youth mentoring and youth counseling 
is really is then based on this white supremacist ideals, I, mm-hmm. I believe. And so there's been some interesting work around that, but I think more more needs to be done to think about how social work practices are are in enforcing those narratives and scripts that we don't even think about where did they come from, right? Right. Yeah, and I think I'm sure this isn't the first time this has come up in your podcast, Shimon, is the, the idea that social workers are agents of social control, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. And and I think like what you're both saying and the quote that I think of that that student of mine said that one time, and I and I actually think that that quote was something she told herself that helped her actually mm-hmm. probably get through some stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, but it's when you, you know, Nicole, as you're talking about how like we've all bought in, right? Like it's mm-hmm. like so deeply ingrained and it's, it's like the oppression plus indoctrination together, right? So things are taken away, culture's taken away as this new way of thinking is like the mind is colonized too, right? And it's so, right. It's so, um, some of this stuff is so subtle. So like Laura saying, you know, we might do something and not even know exactly where it comes from. I think about that quote because on the surface, it can seem so neutral or, or so uplifting, right? Like, hey, where there's a will, there's a way. Like you can do it is what it's the message that they're trying to say. But it's like there's just zero analysis of the, of the conditions that are just slamming this person down like every day, you know? Right, right. You know, it also makes me think of, you know, for the students out there and for the educators that are out there, there's a um, Tara Yoso is a critical race theorist and her article um, whose culture has capital is so great because it kind of flips that narrative of um, what uh, our common understanding of what social capital is. And then she introduces this idea of community cultural wealth and um, so like when you, when you talk about grit, it's really kind of, I mean, it, and that's again, like for me, like the beauty of critical race theory is it, it really kind of deepens our understanding and really our practice of like person and environment and strengths-based perspective. Right. So like that Terry Yoso is a sociologist. She's not a social worker, but I mean, that article is so great because it kind of, gives us a different way of thinking of um, like she defines new um, terms in terms of um, social capital for people of color. Um, so like this idea of grit, right. Is um, what people of color and people from marginalized groups have to do to survive in a world that wasn't created for them. So that's an article that I highly recommend Terry Oso's whose cultural has capital. Mm-hmm. Um for, you know, any practitioner, um, educator, or student to look at. Yeah, lo- love that article. Mm-hmm. And flipping the deficit lens totally exactly. around is so powerful. And you're right. And when I read that article, I actually thought, wow, like, I've heard some of this stuff said about actually social work students mm-hmm. <laughs> from mm-hmm. educators, you know, and so people really do need to read it and really think about like the way we talk about students, the way we talk about clients, the like what we're doing. Right. I mean, just as a quick example, like from her article, right? Like one of the um, examples that she provides is linguistic capital. So where, you know, the dominant narrative might be where it's a deficit where someone speaks with an accent, for example, or that a student has to translate um, for their parent who doesn't speak English, has to translate for their teacher, right? Um, but she kind of flips that 
and 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 it's looking at it in a strengths based way, right? Of like, well, no, here's a child who can speak two languages and think about like kind of like the brain power and the energy that it takes to kind of like interpret and translate at a young age, right? Um, so there's that, like that's another way of looking at that. And then also, you know, you and she doesn't explicitly talk about code switching, but you know, also uh, she doesn't use that term. I don't think in the, in the article, but um, it's also this idea of code switching of how, you know, people who are used to talking a certain way have to switch the way they talk in order to be seen as like legitimate or relevant um, or, or to be taken seriously. And that also takes an additional level of, um, you know, of brain power and effort when you're just communicating with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Those are just all such good points and they come up every day they come up this all this stuff comes up every day yeah and i was gonna add um actually related to three different tenets of critical race theory (laughs) a conversation that i had yesterday in my research with um a black man who's my age in his early 50s um, who was imprisoned for um over 32 years for a crime that he uh, a homicide that he was committed when he was a teenager. So he was 16 or 17, um, and he was locked up until he was about, as he will say, 32 years, something odd days, and however many hours, because he knows exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so until he was about 51 years old. And anyhow, so we were, my connection with him is in the, the realm of my research. But um, over the course of interviews, we've developed a working relationship. And uh, so we were talking yesterday, and I asked him about current events and COVID and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and Trump, and he had some really interesting things to say. And critical race theory actually gave me a lens to situate them. So I'll give you a couple of, of examples. One was when I asked him about the murder of George Floyd and how did that affect him, he said, quote, that ain't nothing new. And, you know, I've been harassed and thrown around by the police so many times, I can't even tell you, even though he had been imprisoned from when he was 17 on, that was his experience as a black man growing up in Los Angeles. So the principle of racism as an ordinary experience, including violent racism, was absolutely nothing new for for him. Um, and then he went on to say, the only reason people got up in arms about it is because white people were out there um, protesting. And um, he said, otherwise, it would have just been another black man getting shot, which has been my experience since I was a kid you know? Um, And so I thought about interest convergence, which is another CRT lens that basically says progressive change regarding race occurs when those who are in power, the white majority happen to, those interests happen to converge. Or in other words, the white majority starts to um, create a policy platform that they care about. And then in talking about his experiences um, with the police and with and in his life and all the lives of all of his family members growing up 
in, in the black community, what I really listened to was his voice and experience. And that's another CRT principle, which is to center the narratives of people with lived experience. So I think in saying that, there's a way that we can bring this work to direct conversations with, with clients. In this case, this is not a client. I'm not in practice. But in listening to what he had to say about current events, all of these principles came into play um, in order for me to help understand his experience. Yeah, I think that or a, a couple of things, I think, with um, this gentleman's experience, one, in terms of interest convergence, it is it's interesting, right? Um, where, you know, this has been his experience. And I absolutely agree. The reason why uh, people are taking notice is because um, these types of murders of um, black men in particular, um, people of color um, have happened, have have always happened and we're just getting an inside look at them now because of like cell phone, because of cell phones, right. And cell phone footage. Um, and so it's been happening for forever and now we're being forced to look at it. And so I would agree, you know, that, that, you know, he's saying that, that this kind of movement is, is happening and, and people are taking notice because now, and I think the reason why, I'll say that the reason why white folks are are up in arms is because there's no ignoring it, right? Like there, there's no ignoring it. Someone, I don't remember who it was that told me that it was, they had heard or read how Ava DuVernay was saying, like, this is the first time we saw both um, perpetrator and victim within the same frame, mm. within the same screen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you actually saw it happening. Um, and I think that's something interesting too. To, to, and you see the juxtaposition, right? Um, and so that's something interesting to to think about. And that's the thing with um, with interest convergence is is just that, right? Um, that these interests are converging. Like black folks have been murdered by police for for centuries, but now because the dominant society can't ignore it, they have to step up and they have to respond. Um, and but I, I think it's amazing and it's necessary, right? That they're hundreds and thousands of people out on the streets. Um, the thing with interest convergence is that, unfortunately, once we see change, um, we can't stop there. So that's another part of critical race theory is that there is an activist component to it because once we know and have a better understanding of how things work and have a better understanding of these tenets, then it's like we can't really ignore it, Right. Um, now we have the tools to kind of understand. And I, you know, I like to say you have to know the beast to slay the beast. Mm. Right. Um, so you can't really ignore it. Um, so once these victories are gained, right. Um, we have the policy change that's happening now as the result of the murder of George Floyd. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can stop. Right. So and one example of interest convergence is with the Brown versus board of education in 1954, Derek Bell first introduced the idea by saying that Brown versus Board desegregated schools like um, at the Supreme Court level. And so, yes, it was the right thing to do. Yes, it was the morally right thing to do. Um, but he kind of questioned why it was happening. And so his kind of argument or analysis of it was, you know, 1954, we were coming out of World War II. Um, we were, you know, 
espousing democracy worldwide, you know, speaking out against communism, talking about how there are these dictatorships across the world. Um, and um, but how can we do that and say we're the land of the free and the home of the brave when we're oppressing our own people here in the U.S.? Right. So it served the United States uh, at the international policy level and diplomatic level to pass Brown versus Board and say, yes, we all we do treat everybody equally. Right. Mm. But then Brown versus Board passed. And that's how those interests converged. Right. Black folks have been, you know, um, fighting and, you know, with their white allies have been fighting for change for years. Um, But and, you know, they gained this victory. But then what happened when Brown versus Board passed, then you have Jim Crow laws. Right. So I think that's the thing with with interest convergence that we have to understand is that, yes, we have these gains, but unfortunately, that's not the end. So like when George Floyd was murdered, yes, we've had these policy changes. Yes, we've had um, now it's called like performative allyship is a term that I learned, right, where you have all these corporations that have said, you know, they've released all of these statements, you know, they're going to we're going to, you know, do better. We're going to change and all of this. Um, And rightfully so, these corporations are being questioned like, okay, that's great. But what exactly are you going to do? Like, what does your board look like? What does your C-suite look like? You know, all of your CEOs and your chief executives, what is the racial, ethnic, gender makeup of of those um, positions, right? So I think that's something we have to be careful with, with interest convergence, that yes, it's important um, to put to, to get these gains, um, to achieve these gains, but one understanding, like what is the real intent behind them? And then for us um, that are out there pushing for change to ensure that it's meaningful and to kind of keep, you know, the pressure on that the, that the change is meaningful and it's not performative. Yeah. You know, you're talking about corporations and I'm just thinking and I'm kind of laughing, but it's not funny. You know, it's schools of social work, right? It's (laughs) I mean, talk about performative allyship, right? It's all these statements that came out. And then it's like, what's your curriculum? Like, who's on your faculty? You know, what do you talk about? Like, how do you treat students? You know, all of that, right? It can fall under everything you're you're talking about with corporations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think what's both interesting about the position of social work and and peculiar as well is that at least at the very least, the mission of social work is and should be aligned with values of social justice, including anti-racism, human rights. Mm -hmm. So it is a liberal enterprise in itself, right? That's not true with corporations. Their mission is to make money. Um, Now, what does that all mean? We are expected in social work to do better, right? Uh, a corporation does a, a reorg, and or hires a, a you know a, a CEO like NBC just did yesterday, a black woman, after twenty five years of having a white male um, CEO, and we're all like, oh, they're great, you know, <laughs> like woohoo! But their mission is still one. Corporate America, the mission is still counter to what social work values are if you if you really look at it all um and so i think in one sense we're held to a a different standard you know because we are expected 
to be doing the work. Ha ha. Pun title of your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, I <laughs> right. love it. I love it. But like with that expectation, it does hold us to a higher standard. And I think we need to to rise to that challenge. Yeah, I think that's, you know, kind of maybe Shimon's point in that it's <laughs> that's what's disappointing, unfortunately, is that um, apparently there have been, you know, um, programs that have put out statements and that's as far as they've gone. You know, and that it is, it is disappointing. But again, going back to CRT, <laughs> it helps me to understand why that happens, right? Because mm-hmm. even though, yes, we're social work and yes, we're supposed to be rooted in, in social justice and seek and um, try to obtain social justice, we still operate within this capitalist system, right? Um, we still follow these ideas of, you know, focusing on the individual and personal responsibility. We, as social work professionals and practitioners, we, we buy into all of that and practice that. And so I think that's what makes it harder for people to actually do the real work, um, of, um, because it's, it's kind of like reversing and overturning how many years of, you know, doing something a certain way. I think, what you're saying is so important. And for me, you know, as I'm going through my own process of learning CRT, because this is not like something I ever got in college or grad school, right? And mm-hmm. even in where I've been working in higher ed for a number of years, this didn't come up really either. It's been my own process of really pursuing this. And then it's like, somehow came across an article, which led me to another article. And then I got to like Laura's article. And then you know, I'm reading her um, citations and, you know, in that article, and I find the report, you know, Nicole, that you worked on from 2007. Mm -hmm. um, And it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. But like these, that's why I wanted to do this episode too, to like, really put this out there for people, because some of this stuff is like, a lot. It's like thick texts and it can be mm. complex and, and that's good. And it should be because it, it is complex and then break it down. But like interest convergence, just as you're talking about it, it's like I'm thinking about experiences that like I've had, right? And how that explains the experience. That So when you say we've got to keep pushing for gains, right? Mm-hmm. And let me, organizations and movements and fields are they're tied to the way things have been so and so it's not it makes sense that it's there's a reluctance to change and it makes mm-hmm. sense unfortunately that we haven't moved that far since Razek and Jeffrey's CRT model and social work came out in 2002 where they suggest that CRT and social work are very compatible but um, that we continue to offer up a model of diversity or cultural competence that really weakens students' abilities to practice in diverse spaces. Um, I want to add, um, the reason I became interested was not only because of the work of our students and, and particularly the work that Nicole started with her colleagues in in doing a critical race analysis of the School of Public Affairs at that time. But also as an educator, I needed a way 
to get students to think beyond the cultural competence model that is so common in social work and teaching about diversity and difference. And again, this is a paradigm shift that I'm surprised hasn't happened. And now there's kind of an opening um, following the murder of George Floyd and the emphasis on anti-racism. I feel like there's now a movement and an opening to say, hey, there is a model out there to teach anti-racism. It does go beyond cultural competence, which is rooted really um, in kind of post-colorblindness and multiculturalism, but not in anti-racism. And so the question for the field, I think, is we have this information out here. Are we going to use it? Is is this the opening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of go back just mm-hmm. one second to that that thought is like with interest convergence and and what you're and it goes exactly with what you're saying, Laura. Is you know and the way things have been and who has who are the who. I mean, yeah, there are these systems, but there's people who uphold these systems. And that's the same in educational programs and and social work programs and social work practice. Mm -hmm. And the interest convergence part, right, where it's like, we've got to keep pushing for gains. So who are we pushing against when you're in a school of social work? Like, why, why do we have to put like, who do we have to push against? And then like, if it's the if those are the same people that have been doing it this way long enough, it's like, just waiting for someone to finally like get it and have like this epiphany that like, oh, like I've got to change after all these years. I mean, that's, I think, also where there's like a really big tension with all of this. I think, Shimon, you have, we have to remember that we're up against a very dominant liberal framework that has also guided social work. So in the same way that the law and education are presumed to be race neutral, so is social work. So... It's like saying to someone again and again, all of the things and the, 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 the principles that your work has been based on, that your thinking's been based on, um, is, you know, we have to rethink all of those. That's, that's hard for people. So I think what we're up against is decades of learning and ideas about racism that are fundamentally incompatible with anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few different thoughts. Um, one of the things that works for critical race theory um, as well is, you know, I was you know former field director and chair designee for, at the, la- the last year I was there at Cal State Dominguez Hills that was founded um, as a program that integrates, that uses critical race theory as its theoretical foundation. So there's a class, critical race studies in um, social work practice that all students take in the first semester of the program. And then it's rooted um, and integrated throughout and infused throughout the whole rest of the program. Um, and at Dominguez Hills, the 90% of the students are students of color. So for those students and for myself, you know, as a, as a student, as a woman of color, um, what CRT did for me was name, um, kind of like the lived experiences that, that we've had. Um, 
I, you know, fortunately, you know, grew up in a middle class household. I'll say that's because my dad had a union. He worked at General Motors and he had a union, you know, paying job that that gave him a a living wage. Um, And I'm thankful for that. Um, The majority of the students at Dominguez Hills grew up in the area surrounding Dominguez Hills. So, you know, South, South L.A., the South Bay, um, you know, some of the uh largely, you know, marginalized and oppressed communities in in Southern California. So they come into our program having these lived experiences, and then we introduce them to critical race theory. And on one hand, it's like a light bulb goes off for them where they're like, wow, you know, like the blinders are taken off. And they, they're actually like terms for their lived experiences. They're, um, there's a validation, you know, of their experiences. And it's great and it's beautiful, but then there's anger that comes with it as well, right? Then they're understandably pissed where they like, they realize, you know, that saying that, you know, the system isn't, is, isn't just the way it is. It was created this way and was created this way purposefully, right? So um, they're understandably upset and they have to figure out like, now what does this mean for me as, you know, a person of color, you know, ex- gender, sexual orientation, whatever, living in this world, what does that mean for me as a person? And now what does it mean for me as a social worker? And then what does it mean for me as a social worker going back and working in the community that I grew up in, right? So there's just so much to that. And that's so much that that comes with that. Um, but I'll say, you know, for the most part, and it's just anecdotally at this point, um, what we, you know, we hear from our students is that it, um, it's a liberating really, you know, experience for them. And that's what I hope, you know, like when Laura is saying, like, you kind of like putting that challenge out there, like, this is something that's there for um, social workers and social work educators and students that really kind of provides a basis and a foundation of understanding of, because I think people will ask, you know, why are things the way they are? And I think the tenets of CRT kind of help us to understand that. Um, and then it's like, it's out there. So there, there are um, terms uh, for lived experiences that we can go back to and um, and can speak to and make us effective, you know, social workers. So it, it really is like an opportunity that's out there, I think, for, for all of us. And I've noticed, and Nicole, that's, I think those are some like really important and rich points to make because we aren't, we're social work as a whole educates lots of different folks and a lot of folks with lived experience and system experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the CRT can be experienced as liberating, it can also be experienced as overwhelming you know but it puts a frame and an analysis and a way to guide understandings of social systems um, that I think ends up being very positive and so for white students and students of from highly privileged backgrounds um, I also think it can be really helpful and the reason why is that because those students are sometimes have trouble contending with the ideas of white supremacy or the idea that somehow they've participated unknowingly in a system that's stacked against others and that benefits them 
it takes it a little bit, the theory, out of the personal all the time, you know, that I'm being personally attacked for who I am um, and into the realm of this is how in, in American society you cannot grow up as white and and not think that somehow you were responsible for your own successes, right? Um, or, you know, it, it helps you unpack how the system has benefited you rather than the focus on just, oh my gosh, you know, I have guilt about this or I don't, you know, I never really understood anything about my whiteness and now I'm, um, you know, that's becoming an emotional barrier, right? So, and those things still happen, but I think CRT gives us principles and theory and also ways of unpacking these systematic um, privileges that also are a benefit to more privileged students in the classroom. Yeah, I think going back to that focus on on the system, what it also allows us to do and make it more, I don't want to say palatable, but easier to kind of t- to take in for, for white folks is that understanding the history, right? Um, that race, one race is socially constructed. And then in this country, the, the hierarchy that's been created has been reinforced for 400 years, mm-hmm. right? So the socialization that we've experienced, however many years we've been on this earth, um, before we were here, it has existed, again, for centuries. And it's been, it's embedded and ingrained. It's in the fabric of our society. So from the textbooks that we read, the movies that we watch, the TV shows that grew, we grew up watching, thankfully, you know, some of those things are changing now. But, you know, the billboards that we see driving down the street, like all of that socialization just reinforces the biases that we have and places, you know, people from X group into this box for us, right? So I think also, you know, one of them, um, Another UCLA alum and one of my friends and colleagues, Susie Barras, like talks about how CRT helps us to feel like we're not like the worst person in the world, you know, because it helps us to understand like, and I think also like as social work students, we kind of go in knowing in our heads, like I I have to be objective, right? Like I can't be homophobic. I can't be, you know, transphobic when I'm going in and working with this client. I can't fear this person because he's a male and he's six feet tall, right? We know that in our heads, but in our hearts, like, and and in our bodies and our physical beings, we can't help how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that understanding that race is socially constructed, there are other markers of identity that are socially constructed as well, like gender, for example, and how that's reinforced and socialized for us kind of helps us to like, and then again, you know, going back to Susie's words helps me feel like I'm not the worst person in the world. Like we understand where they're coming from and helps us kind of give ourselves a little bit of a break. Um, And that introspection and that reflexivity is so key and important. And so like when we talk about like, you know, Shimon, you were asking like how, like we're working, we're supposed to be, you know, working with supposedly working with fellow social workers here at the administrative level in our programs, how do we get to this point? That reflexivity to me is so key and and important, right? Because you can't just tell someone like you have to be anti-racist and this is how you do it. Because if you don't feel it and you don't do that, like kind of like look in, look at your dirty insides and understand where they're coming from, 
you're not going to be able to be effective in in translating that in the classroom in you know facilitating uh, dialogue or conversation or engaging with you know an article with your students and in turn doing that you know if you're a practicing social worker doing that with your clients right like if I have this visceral reaction to this person that walked in, I have to be honest with myself about what is that about? And then knowing it's okay that it's because she's black. And, you know, I'll encourage you all to, to look at Dominguez's website because there's a video on there about CRT and I interview Susie mm-hmm. and she's talking about that, like just being honest with herself about understanding where her biases come from and knowing that it's okay because like, how can you not? Right. If it's been socialized in us um, and that socialization is based on centuries of socialization and reinforcement of these biases, like how can we not um, unlearn? I mean, it. how much work is it going to take to unlearn those things? But I mean, we have to do it. Right. We absolutely have to do it. We don't have a choice. We really, especially as social workers. Right. We don't have a choice. What I'd like to see is that we take the principles of critical reflexivity and critical self-awareness that you just mentioned. But instead of applying that of just, if I'm aware of my biases, I'm going to be an effective anti-racist practitioner, which some multicultural models presuppose self-awareness is kind of, um, you know, the precursor to being an effective practitioner. And it, and it is in a lot of ways, but it's not enough. Right. And so, um, what moving beyond a multicultural model, which has really been a colossal failure in social work education from all, all, um, from all accounts and research is if we were to say we have critical self-awareness and critical reflexivity and we learn about critical race theory, just like we learn about systems theory, right? If this becomes a theory that is just as important or just as um, central as person and environment, and it actually mm-hmm. goes together quite well. Absolutely. We'll be, as a foundation, training practitioners to be far more equipped to intervene at all levels of cl- practice um, in, the, in communities of color than we do now. So that's going to be my, my plug here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on board. Laura. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> um, you know, so in at UCLA, you know, when we started to include a couple units on CRT, um, and now it's become a staple of one of our theory classes, along with queer theory and feminist theory. Um, and we've also moved into intergroup dialogue which has some elements of CRT baked in as well. Um, it's not perfect. And I'm not going to say that there's any, um, you know, that we've reached a point where we don't have to keep working at it. Um, but I think those elements, they do lend a foundation to anti-racist practice. And the key, one of the key parts about that is, is challenging colorblindness or challenging the idea that, okay, we all bring a culture and that equalizes oppressions. Um, and that's really what sparked me to write that article on critical race theory back in 2009. And I still, I don't believe 
that um, even though this article is widely used and cited, that it's really, it hasn't infiltrated the mainstream of, of social work education in terms of what most schools are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I know we're, I know we're going to be wrapping up soon, but I just kind of want to put out there, you know, what's been helpful to me that I've been thinking a lot about lately as I learn more about CRT and when you think like going back, Nicole, to what you said about like all men are created mm-hmm. equal, right? And that like on the surface, that seems like a good concept. We can apply that same thing to social work, right? And then like social work is rooted in social justice simply of these codes of ethics. And I just keep contrasting the United States with right. social work as these institutions that put out these ideals, but that from the core, like racism was deeply like was is in the foundation right and so like when i think about these blocks and these challenges of making change within social work i think of it as like the blocks and the challenges of making change within the united states absolutely like it's going to take a radical a radical shift um and there have been plenty there's been plenty of discussion there have been plenty of articles written about, you know, the professional is the professionalization movement, you know, of social work, like social work started um, as a community or it wasn't a profession, right? There were community organizers out there trying to help people um, of different races, right? But they, whose stories do we hear? And do we learn about in our, in our programs? That's, you know, a start, but um, you're right. Like it, if we want to do social work, and truly uphold, you know, the code of ethics and our values and things like that, it doesn't fit in with academia. <laughs> it doesn't fit in with these academic structures. So, so what does that mean? You know, um, what can that really, really look like? Um, I think, you know, I've been, I've attended so many webinars and things lately. I can't remember which one it was in. It was either the one, it was either our um, critical race scholars one, or it was the one that, uh, you know, that Laura, um, UCLA and Houston, and um, I don't want to get it wrong, it was Howard, Howard. right? <laughs> um, and ASU. Yeah, that there was someone there that was talking about the way they grade, and how it's like a conversation that they have with their students. And then the, the instructor um, and the student at the end of the semester come to like a consensus as to what the student's grade should be. Right. Like to me, that's decolonizing academia. Um, and but like how much more work does that take? Imagine like having those conversations like throughout the semester with each one of your students. Um, it takes it. That's a lot of work. But uh, I thought that was beautiful when, when that um, professor was explaining that. Gotta yeah, do the work. The work. <laughs> we have work to do. That's for yeah. sure. I mean, if students have listened this far along, you know, I hope that it's like, hold your faculty to this stuff. Like, hold your, first of all, hold yourself to this stuff, but like, hold your professors to this, you know, like, bring this up in your classes and same with practitioners, you know, like, bring this up to like your directors and, right? I mean, that's, we've got to have these conversations. They're super hard to have, but we got to do it. Yeah. That's one thing I was thinking. Thank you, Shimon, for bringing that up, you know, to students. Is it one that there's power in numbers and, um, you know, uh, the faculty that are listening may not appreciate this, but like, you know, like administrators respond to students and they respond to numbers. So like if, if they're not listening 
or you feel like your curriculum isn't, you know, reflective of what it is, what it is that you need to learn, um, then hold them accountable and do it, you know, in, in numbers. And I mean, hopefully you learn this in your policy, whatever policy class you take, or if there's like a policy advocacy class you take, like take what you're learning in your classes and do it in this strategic way. Um, you know, do a power analysis to figure out like who, who is the right target. Um, learn the hierarchical structure of your program. If it sits within a college or, you know, where it fits in the university. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like we're calling out social work and, you know, in doing that, we have to call out the institutions that are teaching social workers that are producing social workers. And as an academic administrator, (laughs) I could say that, um, it also helps to just also, it also helps to have a conversation with your associate dean of, uh, curriculum or the chair, the director, and just say, Hey, I'm curious about these things, you know? So not everything has to come in the form of a petition in the sense that, um, sometimes people are more open than you think mm-hmm. that that's going to be my, my academic administrator, uh, uh, pushback, um, in the sense that I think there's a lot of openness. I think there's a lot of open doors right now and, it shouldn't be up to students either to do all the work on this. I think faculty also, um, they do need, they need to do the work and learn and revise the curriculum without students always having to put in that unpaid labor too. So, so a call to my fellow faculty out there as well, let's try to um, do the work and not, so to speak, get in the situation where we end up, with masses of students unhappy with the curriculum. Like maybe we can get ahead of that this time. Yeah. Yeah. And like Laura said too, um, compensate, find ways to, if you're bringing your students in to help, like if they're putting in some work, they need to be compensated for the work that they're putting in. Cause I've heard this from students across the country. Again, I've sat in on quite a few webinars and, and workshops and things over the last few months where, you know, I hear students saying like, I'm doing their job for them. I rewrote a syllabus um, and they're, they're doing it because they care. And they're like, this is what they want to learn. And the faculty is kind of either they're taking it and saying thanks and not compensating the students or they're saying thanks and then not implementing it, which is worse. Um, so, so yeah, I mean. So pay them and implement. Right. You know, that goes back to you know, critical race theory and the counter narratives, right. Of like centering the voice. I mean, if, if anything, and we look at, you know, power structures within, you know, social work programs, like students are in diminished positions of power and it's taking a lot for them to kind of stand up to their administrators um, and, and, you know, offer something, you know, a form of change. And that in and of itself was, is a struggle, I think for them to do, so we need to be centering the experiences and the voices of our students when we're trying to change for the better. Well, it's interesting being a former student who used to stand up to administration and then being an administrator. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But that's, that could be the subject of a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, when, when you see yourself and your students who are half your age or less, 
Mm-hmm. And they're, it's aggravating because you know that they're going to be at your door and pushing you. But then it's like you remember, but I was that student mm-hmm. and I wanted to be listened to. Um, and I didn't feel heard. I, I think that's the thing is it is, is kind of off the wall as this may sound is that I think we forget that our students are adults. They, they are adults, right? Like they're not high schoolers, you know, high schoolers should also be listened to. Right. But, but no, these are adults <laughs> and a lot of them come in with, you know, lived, not only their lived experiences, but professional experiences as well. Um, and we have just as much, if not more to learn from them than they do from us. And that goes back to, you know, social work practice, being vulnerable and being, and having mm-hmm. humility in that space and in that relationship. Absolutely. You, uh, we, I could just keep going. You just take me off my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, you should just stop. <laughs> We're good. So we've covered a lot and there's as much, if not more to go. <laughs> and, and obviously we we got to wrap it up at a certain point. Um, I think this is, I think we've really covered a lot. I think you both have given people a lot to think about and a lot of like entry points um, beyond entry points. And I think that's really important, you know, and I hope that um, this conversation, you know, is going to continue in a lot of, in a lot more places and build like a broader movement around this, you know? And so I just want to thank you both for coming on here, sharing your time and, and doing the work, the work you both do every day to really make things better. You know, I, I just really appreciate you both so much. Thank you, Shimon. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah. Thank you. It was fun. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.